Guess where we are? John chapter 1. Three years. And that's just chapter 1. We do have a little ways to go. But today, we're going to cover a whole part of a verse. <laughs> so hang in there with me. So, and the reason why we're only going to cover part of a verse is because this is one of the great <coughs> verses in the entire Bible. Um, one of the most important theologically. It's the heartbeat of the Gospel of John. I, I think you could call it the heartbeat of Christianity in some ways. It's, uh, except for maybe verse 1 of John's Gospel, verse 14 is probably the most studied examined and talked about words of any text anywhere at any time in the entire world. And I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm talking about any book in the entire world. It's probably the most studied and thought about words ever. So it's kind of important. So pay attention. <laughs> it's the central doctrine of our faith in simple words, which means Paul didn't write this. <laughs> this is John's writing. It's super scrutinized. It, it's the central doctrine of our faith in simple words. So um, there's not a lot to say about, I mean, there is a lot to say about verse 14 through 18, which, which is the end of John's prologue. So the prologue is from verse 1 to verse 18. Then he's going to start the gospel story. But um, verse 14 through 18 are huge. And those verses have to have your attention because they describe the paramount act, the most important thing that ever happened in all of human history. I mean, nothing matters more than what's being described in this section here. It's unparalleled. Nothing like it ever happened before. Nothing like it's ever happened since. And your salvation depends on it. So it's kind of important. So I'm going to review. Back up to verse 1. I'm going to just kind of give us a running start towards verse 14 here. So remember in verse 1, John introduced the logos, the word. Logos is the Greek word for word. The logos is eternal, we find out. In the beginning of our universe, the word already existed. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? The word was a person, so he's in a relationship with God. That's what with God means. And he's the same essence as God. He is God, so the word was with God, and he was God. And that's our core of our Trinitarian idea of who God is. And we learn as well that the word, the Logos, is the creator of the universe. That's what he says in verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So all the vastness of space and time, the laws of nature, the unique place where we live, this planet teeming with complex living creatures, the great beauty of these creatures and all the trees and the flowers and the sky and the sea and everything about it, the stars, the word made that. The Lagos made all of it. It's an amazing world we live in. And we can marvel at all of it and study its intricacies and it reveals deeper and deeper levels of complexity and creativity the more we study it and the more we look into it. And the Lagos made it all. He made every bit of it. He designed it. He created it. So he, a person who was with God and was God, 
He fashioned everything. He's the greatest engineer and artist imaginable in one person. And there's more. One creature that he made stands above all the other creatures that he made. And that's human beings. That's us. Man made in his image. And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So those words in verse 4 have a, a, maybe a deeper meaning that we might expect because of the human, the hu- human nature, but also our human condition, which is that we are fallen creatures. God made us rational, made in his image. So he's not only an engineer and an artist, but we are engineers and artists as well. We reason, we speak, we can study. And it's no secret that we are a corrupt mess. That's the polite way of saying it. We walked away from God. We use our gifts for evil and not for good. So Jesus called mankind, his word was lost. That's a really good word, lost. We're in spiritual darkness, groping for meaning, for answers, for some kind of connection to something, and we're all dying. So lost and dying are really the conditions of humanity. Spiritually lost, physically dying. And to hear that he is light and life grabs our attention because we need both. We need both. Can it be true that he is life and light? That's what John says, in him was life and he was the light of men. Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So this Logos who exists with God and is God shines in the darkness and that suggests that in some way he's present, right? There's something here about him. The light shines, there's illumination, but the darkness did not comprehend it. So men, these fallen creatures, did not grasp who he was or how he's in the world. And then we see that there's a human witness to the light, and he wants us to believe in the light. That was verse 6 that's talking about John the Baptist, right? There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That's verse 6. And then at verse 9, John the Apostle explicitly says that the word who is light has come into the world. So that's telling us something very important. He's come into the world. He came into the world that he made. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. So as I said last time, he did not come to just anywhere in the world, but he came unto his own. To the people who had been told to expect him and a people well prepared by the ministry of John the Baptist to receive him, he came into the world. Now, There's one thing that John the Apostle writing here, just in this prologue so far, has not yet communicated. The one thing is how he came into the world. How did he come into the world and how long did he stay in the world? 
And the answer to the first question is the bombshell, verse 14. The stunning, stunning claim. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So verse 14, those words right there are the high point of the prologue. The prologue is designed to point you to the, these phrases here. This is the statement. This is the claim. The word became flesh. So the word who was with God and who was God, the word who made everything, absolutely everything in all of creation, the word of infinite power and creative brilliance, the word became flesh. Became flesh. That's how God came into the world. And how he chose to come into the world is of the utmost importance. And John uses the word flesh very carefully. He's well chosen. And the fact that he uses that word is kind of everything about this. God did not merely appear as a man. He took on a full human nature. He was in the womb. He was born. He was an infant. He, he grew up and learned how to speak and how to work in his father's carpenter shop and all of that. He lived a man's life. Everything that's essential to humanity that makes humanity humanity, he was that. He lived it to the full. And when it says he came to his own, it means the Jewish people, the covenant people. He came as a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David. Now, some of the Bible translations that are a little bit looser, you know, there's like really sort of word-for-word -word translations, and there's like really wild kind of general idea sort of translations, and there's ones in the middle, and there are all kinds of levels of that, but the ones that are a little bit on the looser end, they often translate the word became a man, or the word became a human being. That's true, but it's kind of missing John's point. He had words for those ideas he could have used. There's a word for man, and there's a word for human, and he could have used those words, but he didn't. He chose the word flesh. Why? So that it could not be mistaken that Jesus came as a full human being in every way. Now, if you were around with us for the last year or two, <laughs> uh, in 1 John, John, we talked a lot about the Gnostics, because when John was writing, Gnosticism was this growing cult, this quasi-Christian cult, that was mainly trying to take Christianity and squish it into Greek philosophy and make it fit. So they abandoned the core truths of the Christian faith. And the main thing they denied is that God would come in the flesh. They said, that can, God could not do that. He would never do that. Because he's perfect and infinite and the flesh is corrupt and weak. And he would not do that. So their, their thinking was, there was this entity called the Christ in the cosmos, sort of a lesser deity, and he came upon this man, Jesus, and inhabited him to reveal these secret truths that Gnosticism is based on. Gnostic means knowledge. To give this knowledge, and then right before he was going to be crucified, the Christ spirit left him and literally abandoned Jesus to die on the cross. So um, it's kind of an interesting religion. Greek philosophy said that God could not become a man, would not become a man, and that he could not die on the cross. And John said, nope, that's exactly what God did. That's what God did. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was the man, Jesus. The word died on the cross. The logos died on the cross. 
In fact, once John tells us that the word became flesh, you will not read in the gospel anymore him calling Christ the Logos. That's where it ends, right here. Right here. He's not going to call him that anymore. The word has a name. And his name is Jesus. And within the rest of this prologue right here, he's going to tell you his name. And after he tells you his name, he's not going to call him the Logos anymore. Not that he isn't that, but he wants you to focus on his humanity. So in verse 17, we're going to see his human name because he hasn't said Jesus yet. He hasn't mentioned that yet. But that's only a few sentences away and we'll be getting to it soon. (laughs) But no more will we hear him called the Logos because John has made his point about who the Logos is and what he did. He became flesh. So with the flesh came all the weaknesses and needs of the human body. He was a true man. Jesus got bone-weary tired. Jesus got ravenously hungry. Jesus needed sleep after a long day. Emotionally, we see Jesus cry. In fact, we see Jesus deeply troubled. You guys, God does not get deeply troubled. He's never deeply troubled in heaven. But the word who became flesh did because his soul was a human soul. And he was interacting with the world as a human being, a real man. So in all ways, he was man, yet without sin. He didn't stop being God, but he became fully human. He, Paul says he took the form of a bondservant. Even though he existed in the form of God, Paul says he took the form of a bondservant. And so he's living out this full human life. And that's why he could not just appear here and deliver a lecture. He was a man. He was without sin, but he was a man. And he had a much more important task to do here than just tell us what God wants for us. The law of Moses is God's lecture. That's, that's the Old Testament. That's the books of Moses there, the first five books of the Bible. That's God's lecture. But all it did, all the lecture did, was reveal the fact that we're sinners. Because we read the Ten Commandments and the law, and we go, oh, I broke that one. Oh, I, I broke that one too. In fact, I, I've broken this one. And even if we admire the lecture and love the commandments, we don't live them very well because we're sinners. Most people just ignore the lecture whatsoever because the rules interfere with their pleasures and they don't want to have to deal with them. But even those who love the lecture, the law, fall short. Fall short. Profoundly, what, profoundly so. Except for Jesus. He didn't fall short. He lived the law of Moses perfectly. He lived the law of God perfectly. He lived the moral law perfectly. Jesus lived a spotless human life. So he could become the spotless lamb of God. We will look at that more closely very soon, but it's right here in chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees him and says, it says in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That will be very important, obviously, going forward to tell the gospel story. And then if you get to chapter 6, 
There's a long and testy back and forth between Jesus and some of the folks that were sort of interested in following him. And there he presents himself as the bread of life. And we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 4, that in him was life, right? And the life was the light of men. John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. My flesh. He's the living bread. He's the source of eternal life. And what is the bread? His flesh. So now we've already said that human beings are in spiritual darkness, right? And we're all dying. And Jesus says the bread which he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. Eternal life is found in him. But he has to die for us to have it. His human life has to be offered up. That's, and that's the sense that he's the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. That's why he died on Passover. We cannot have eternal life we can't have eternal life unless we are righteous, unless we are holy, unless we satisfy the requirements of the law of God. God can't let wickedness into heaven. And, the, and we read the law, the lecture, if you will, and it condemns us. So we're sunk, right? I guess we're doomed. The Apostle Paul's simple way of saying it is the wages of sin, what you earn when you sin, is death. So we have to be righteous before the holy law to have life with God. So I've got a problem because I am not righteous. Not even close. The wages of sin is death and I have earned that sentence of death personally many, many times over the course of my life. What am I going to do about that? There's this gap. There's this divide. There's this separation between me and life. And I can't cross over. I have a righteousness shortfall, a deficit of righteousness that I can't make it up. If I lived a perfect life from today on, I've got all this genuine law-breaking I've done. If you murder 20 people and go to jail, guess what? You're still a murderer. Some, you got to account for all that. There's, I've got a debt. I can't pay the debt. But, but if you think back to the original Passover lamb in Egypt, remember they took the blood of the lamb, the spotless lamb, and put it over their doorpost and the angel of death came to strike the firstborn of the Egyptians and passed over anybody that had the blood over their door. You remember that, right? And just as the Passover lamb caused death to pass over the Jews in Egypt, the blood of Jesus turns God's wrath away from us because he becomes our substitute. And that Passover lamb had to be spotless. My sacrifice the one that sacrificed for me has to be spotless too. He has to be sinless. And the word became flesh to be that sinless sacrifice. Our creator, the word who was with God, he became flesh, a true man, a sinless man. And he took on himself our sin and paid the penalty of the demands of God's perfect and holy law. So the true Lamb of God becomes my Redeemer by paying my debt to God's justice with His blood. And it had to be a man. A lamb can't pay for my sin. A real lamb. 
<laughs> that kind of lamb. Can't pay for my sin. A thousand bulls, the Bible says, couldn't pay for your sin. We need a human representative, a true man, to pay our debt for mankind. And when we put our trust in Jesus and confess him as our king, that blood is applied to us. It's like spread over your door, right? It's applied to you, his blood. That way, my slate is clean. And I can join my Savior in heaven. I can cross that gap because he's covered the full penalty of my sin. So, earlier I asked two questions. We said, how, how did the word come into the world? How did he do it? He became flesh. And how long did he stay? And he doesn't give a lot of specific information about the second question. How long did he stay? He, he doesn't give an exact number of years, though putting all the information together, we have a pretty good idea of how long Jesus lived on the earth. But he does say in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So he dwelt among us long enough for us to see his glory. So it's not a fleeting appearance. It's not a short stay. It's not a one-nighter. It was not, hey, God came and visited us yesterday. Where were you? Oh, I missed it. <laughs> Rat. No, he, he dwelt among us for years. I mean, he lived over 30 years on this earth and over three years in very public ministry. I mean, he was famous. Thousands upon thousands of people sought him out everywhere he went. So the creator of all things came unto his own and lived among us as one of us. And Greek scholars point out to us that this word dwelt here, it says dwelled among us. He dwelt among us. The verb form of that, which is what we have right here, it's just a verb form of the word tent. Like set up a pup tent, right? Put up a tent. The verb form literally means tenting or living in a temporary structure. That's the idea behind it. Or to pitch one's tent, it could be translated that way. That's the word's literal original meaning. Although, over time, figuratively speaking, tenting did come to mean just dwelling in some place, living somewhere. But many believers have seen a clear connection of that word tenting to a very famous tent in the Old Testament, which we call the... Good, good job, you biblically, biblically literate people. Yeah, we call it the tabernacle. Uh, tab tabernacle is actually from the Latin word for tent. So that's where it comes from. It's a very well-known tent where God manifested his glory. Yeah, exactly. So we call it the tabernacle. This is the tent God commanded Moses to build as the center of worship in the camp of Israel. Not only was it a place of worship, it's a place where God's glory dwelt, right? It was literally God's presence among his people. And some translators actually like to translate John 1.14 this way and say, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Some, some English translations actually do that. And we beheld his glory. So they wanted to make a real direct connection there. And that's a legitimate way to translate it. So the connection with the tabernacle of Moses is made even stronger with the mention of this word glory. We beheld the glory of the Lagos, the glory of the word, our creator. So the book of Exodus gives us a lot of detail. If you ever tried to read all the way through it, most people bogged down during the detailed description of building that tabernacle and all the parts that went into it and how they made it and what it was made of, what it looked like. We know a lot about it. It was a vessel 
for the presence of God's glory. Just as the human body and the soul of Jesus is a vessel, the body that Jesus came with, that he was born in, is a vessel for the glory of God in a similar way that the tabernacle is a vessel for God's glory in that way. Yeah, but Jesus was a man, you know. He looked like any other man. He didn't look glorious. You know, that's actually true. But think back to the tabernacle. If you've read through there and you've really paid attention to how it was made and what it was constructed of and how it was set up, this tabernacle that Moses built, he built it according to God's specific plans. God gave him exactly how it's supposed to be. Everywhere the Israelites went in the wanderings, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp and all the tribes would camp around it. It was all organized in very great detail. So they could see it. It was the center of everything. But it wasn't particularly spectacular. It was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and about 15 feet high, the tabernacle. So it's big. It was bigger than any other structure in the camp, but it's portable. It's not huge. How glorious was it? Well, on the outside, it wasn't very glorious at all. It really wasn't. The colors were muted. You know, there were four layers of coverings over the top of the whole thing that were pulled down with cords and pegs and all that kind of stuff that covered the whole thing. Some of those were beautiful coverings, but the very top one that covered the whole thing was not beautiful. It was a very dull color. It was practical. It was keep the rain out, right? All that kind of stuff. Durable but dull, you could call it. You know, that kind of, that kind of paint job. But it wasn't paint. It was a coverings, you know, material. And even, even the, the furniture outside that they used, the, the brazen altar and the uh, laver, they were bronze. They weren't particularly fancy, ordinary bronze. But if you went inside the tabernacle, very different. If you go inside, color. Colors predominated. No neutral colors. All the articles of furniture were gold. The lampstand was gold. The table for the bread was gold. The... Um, Altar of incense, which right before the, you go into where the Holy, Holy of Holies is, that was gold. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, because there's two compartments, right? The holy place, priests go in there every day. Then the Holy of Holies, special place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That curtain between them, it was beautiful. In fact, all the weaving in there and the material they used were a blend of purple and blue and scarlet. And on that curtain, that veil, there were embroidered beautiful cherubim angels on there. The inside was gorgeous. And how many Jews got to see that inside? Very, very few. Very few. It was beautiful, but hardly anybody saw it. Only priests. Every day, a priest would go in where the furniture was and see those angels on the veil. But only the high priest ever went beyond that veil and saw the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he only could do it once a year. Once a year. Somebody saw that. And guess what? Where the Ark of the Covenant was is where God's glory was. So it was above the Ark. The Ark's built with angels, golden angels that are looking towards the center. And in that place, God's glory was there. And only once a year did one man get to see that. It was hidden. It was hidden. The holy place had to have a lampstand. But the holy of holies had the light of God in it. There was no need for a lampstand there. The average Israelite, both the craftsmanship and 
the artistic glory of the holy place for the average Israelite the, the glory of God's radiant presence was hidden from them they, they could not go in there and see it it was a hidden glory within the structure so in sort of a similar way the Lord Jesus is the creator incarnate in flesh so the glory is hidden in his humanity right you might recall how the prophet Isaiah described the Messiah in uh, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 he says he grew up before God him like a tender shoot like a root out of the parched ground he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. I don't think any Greek artisan would have used Jesus for a statue model. <laughs> Pose like this, Jesus. One of those Greek, Greek guys, you know. He was not necessarily a physical ideal. To look upon, he was probably a lot more like Abraham Lincoln than Hercules, you know. <laughs> Or Captain America, if you want a modern version of that. His flesh was the flesh of men. He didn't glow, except once. He glowed once on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, just one time. He kind of pulled back the veil for just a moment. And three of the disciples got to see that. Matthew says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. So he was seen in glory like the glory that filled the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was finished God's glory completely filled the whole thing. So much so the priest couldn't even go in there. And that was like okay here's my glory from now on though it's going to be hidden. And Jesus revealed his glory his true glory to Peter James and the guy that wrote this book, John. They were the ones that saw it. They saw Jesus' glory. Now, when he says we beheld his glory, that could be what he's talking about, that incident. But I actually don't think that's what he's talking about. For us, I think, for those he ministered to, the glory of Christ is found in the incarnation, in his perfect manhood. His character, what we might call the inner glory, which was hidden from view except as it was manifested in his life hidden like the tabernacle glory was hidden how was Jesus among people what did they see when they interacted with him they saw perfect love including love for the least among us and the sinners the worst sinners among us he loved them his wisdom obviously if you just read his interacting with people and his messages in the gospels his, his keen insight into the human condition, knowing what was in the human heart and how he reveals that, his holiness, absolutely unfailing goodness, all of that, I think we see his glory there. And I think John is alluding to that in verse 14 because he says, we beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, and he doesn't talk about glowing lights or him glowing or anything like that. He says, full of grace, and truth that's the glory full of grace and truth that's the greatest glory the fullness of Christ is a big theme in John's gospel he doesn't lack anything and from the character of this man Jesus God incarnate flows a constant stream of grace and truth that's what's glorious about him grace 
What is grace? Undeserved favor, right? He loves the fallen. He loves the sinner. He doesn't hold things against people. He doesn't, oh, you're not worthy of my time. He's not like that at all. It's grace, unmerited favor. He gives favor for those who don't deserve it. It flows from him. If you blew it, he loves you. He in no way loves the sinful choices that we make, but he loves us. And Jesus never compromises righteousness, ever. That's part of his glory. Never compromises what the truth is or what God's standard is. But he is a savior. He's a redeemer. He's so full of grace toward the unworthy that he became the Passover lamb. He came to reclaim the lost. He came to lead us home, to make us God's children. That's what he came for. And he offers that to us. And this grace is seen at a level literally beyond our comprehension at the cross where this perfect man carried in his body the judgment of God. Not only the cruelty of Rome, but the judgment of God on sin. He bore it in his body. The just dying for the unjust. It's just an incomprehensible gift that he would do that. That's grace. Truly, Jesus was full of grace. And never more so than at the cross. And he speaks the truth. That's so interesting in the time in which we live. Because nobody wants to speak the truth. It's kind of bad to speak the truth. Even really obvious truths. You know. Once universally recognized truths. You're not allowed to say them anymore. Like. A woman. Is an adult human female. You can't say that. In our culture anymore. It takes courage to say it. You might lose your job for saying it. That's how, that's how far we are deep in the darkness. Jesus spoke the truth to everyone all the time. He cut deep with the truth and we have to be ready for that. Upsetting the religious order. He upset the cultural norms that had stood for a very long time. He called the religious leaders actors. That's the Greek word hypocrite, hypocrites. So when Jesus calls people hypocrites, he says, you're acting. You're acting pious. You're acting holy, but you're not. He was very open about that. To their faces, you're not real. They didn't like that. They didn't like that. They hated him for it. And they had the power. But Jesus didn't ever let people's hatred stop him. He just spoke the truth right to the end. He was completely reliable because he never, ever had to shade the truth. He came to reveal God's grace and to speak truth into this world. That was his glory and he did it. His miracles were glorious, but they were temporary. We can't actually see them, but his truth remains because we have his words. And his grace remains because the reality of the cross can touch our lives today. His statements of truth don't change because the human condition doesn't change. We're just as wretched, wretched as they were back in those days. We haven't improved at all. And we see the evidence of that literally every day. So his words are still true. The gospel is eternal because since, his, since he came and dwelt among us, more and more people have been born in, in this dark, dying condition, separated from God. And they need the same gospel. They need it back then. And Jesus offers that the gospel is eternal because salvation the salvation he brings lasts forever and we're just as lost as they were and we need it and if we accept it we'll delight in him forever 
So, our creator became flesh to save us from ourselves. And to speak the truth so we know exactly what God wants from us. And what he wants us to do. And we know exactly what God did for us. On the cross and in the resurrection. So John's just getting started with his prologue's conclusion here. And... Next week, we'll focus a little bit more on grace and truth because he's not done with that. And we'll focus on the person that Christ really is. Okay, let's pray. Lord, you came to us with grace and truth. You, our creator, became flesh to shine on us with your love, with your grace, with your tender heart. And to speak truth. To speak truth about everything we need to know. And most of all you became our sacrifice. Grace took you to the cross. Because to love us well you had to bear the burden of our sin. And you did that. Our love for you is one of awe and gratitude. We ask you to keep it alive in us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray in his name. Amen.